0: back inside the chat room. You are tuned in to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We are broadcasting live from the University of California campus in Irvine. We're streaming on the web at KUCI.org. We are podcasting every sultry, awesome minute of this show. You can log on to KUCI.org, click on archives, scroll down to the chat room, and every one of our shows is up there and available for download Right now. We're, uh, we're taking your calls all hour. It is KUCI's biannual fund drive. We come to you only once a year, twice a year maybe, <laughs> and, and uh, ask for your help in supporting this independent, non-commercial college radio station. And uh, So give us a call this hour, 949-824-5824, 949-UCI-KUCI. KUCI brings you talk that you uh, you absolutely will not hear anywhere else. This show is a great example. We've got law shows, we've got medical shows. Uh, this show is uh, has been up and running for three quarters now, and um, I can guarantee you the things you hear on here you are not going to hear on commercial radio. So uh, show us the love, and if you've um, if you've got questions for our guests today, and I can almost promise you that you will, uh, you can call us. For that reason, too. We're uh, we're taking all of your calls, both uh, financial help as well as listener questions, and I'm going to pose some questions to our listeners today, so if you want to call in and, uh, and join us for that, that would be great. I'm your host, Marie Stone. I'm here with Dana.
1: Hello. Hey. Did you know KUCI officially went 200 watts in 1993?
0: 1993.
1: Right. We've been around since 1969, but it took... gosh, someone do the math there. Is that Forty-two years. So it was...
0: F- I can do the math because that's pretty much how old I am. 49. Forty, maybe 43 years. Yeah.
1: So it took Great. 24 years to get to 200 watts. Before that, we were, you know, 20, yep. which is really barely enough to get it within walking distance. I mean, really, you would have trouble getting the station. So we're an old station. We've been around since 69, but it's only recently that we kind of stepped up to the big leagues. Yep. And, yeah, we do need your support.
0: Yeah, and I volunteer. think we're one of the first stations that started podcasting, right? And streaming online.
1: Yeah, one of the we were very early in streaming online back before it it is what it is now, which is it's kind of a baby industry. There's so many little radio stations that are online only. Yes, we were one of the first.
0: I love it. I love it. So, yeah, give us a call. We are uh, we are taking your calls all week. We're taking your calls. Dana and I are taking your calls all hours. So uh, we'd love to hear from you. So as an example of what you won't hear on other radio stations, we are interviewing the awesome Melissa Phoebos. Melissa was here two years ago with me on Writers on Writing uh, with her memoir, Whip Smart. She grew up on Cape Cod as the daughter of a sea captain and Buddhist psychotherapist. She was first employed as a chambermaid and subsequently worked as a boatyard hand, a babysitter, and dishwasher at a slew of seafood restaurants. Despite the fact that she's a lifelong vegetarian and probably the only person raised on Cape Cod who has never tasted lobster. At 15, she dropped out of high school and homeschooled herself for a year. At 16, she moved to Boston and waited tables while taking night classes at Harvard. And after moving to New York in 1999, she graduated from the New School University, spent four years working as a professional dominatrix, and received an MFA in writing from Sarah Lawrence. She now lives in Brooklyn. She's been there for over a decade. She co-curates and hosts the popular monthly music and reading series Mixer on the Lower East Side, teaches writing and literature at SUNY Purchase College, NYU and the New School, in addition to offering private editing and instruction. Uh, it is, it's a little bit of her memoir, Whip Smart, that we're talking about today, but we're talking all about Melissa's four years as a professional dominatrix in New York City, what that was like, and uh, how it has affected her later on in her life. Melissa, Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for coming back on. This is uh this is going to prove to be a much different interview than you did on Writers on Writing. <laughs> I can promise it's you that. True. <laughs> it's true.
2: It's true. It's a, it's a much broader topic than writing.
0: Indeed, indeed. So tell us a little bit more than I said in your introduction. Talk a little bit about how you got into this, if there were things in your personality that lent themselves well to this line of work, and um, sort of take us through maybe the day in the life of a, uh, of a dominatrix. Sure.
2: Um, well, I mean, you know, I think that, as much as we like to pretend that life happens to us, there's almost always characteristics in our personalities that lead us to the things we end up doing, um, whether we want to be accountable or not. It was definitely true for me. Um, and I think that, you know, where people tend to go, when I tell them I was a dominatrix for four years, and I mean, first of all, do you, do you think that your listeners know what a dominatrix is? Should I define it? I
0: think you should. Yeah.
2: Okay. (laughs) So dominatrix is technically a sex worker, although most of them don't have actual intercourse with their clients. For the most part, they keep their clothes on, um, and their clothes consist of pretty typical iconic S&M gear, thigh-high leather boots, corsets, fishnets, very severe makeup, very tall shoes, um, and usually some kind of you know, abusive implement in hand. Um, And what I basically did as a dominatrix is I would have one-hour sessions with my clients, um, and I would act out their fantasies. And there was always sort of, um, in the foreground of those fantasies, there was always some kind of power dynamic, uh, typically me being in power and them being disempowered. Um, and there was definitely a lot of sort of uh, role play and bondage and spanking, but um, I think that it's somewhat of a misconception and kind of reductive the way that people tend to think of it just as you're a disgusting pig, crawl on the floor and kiss my feet. There's plenty of that, but um, I also played just about every iconic, powerful female role that we have in our culture. So I did a lot of mommy. I did a lot of babysitter, cheerleader, teacher, police officer, nurse. We specialized in nurses at the dungeon where I worked. Um, yeah, and that's it. That's, Which that's I, what I did for four years.
0: And I imagine that includes a lot of medical fetish play once you're in the nurse
2: Absolutely, room. absolutely. Yeah, there's there's a broad spectrum of of nursiness, from sort of kind and nurturing to extremely sadistic, dressed all in rubber nurse. Um, And the place where I worked was um, right in Midtown Manhattan, right near Bryant Park where Fashion Week happens, and, um, and we occupied sort of the whole floor of this office building, totally unmarked from the outside. Um, and it was really quite beautiful, huge space, 12-foot ceilings, lots of different rooms, long hallways. We actually have three medical rooms, and, you know, I was just in my doctor's office yesterday, and and I was thinking about the medical rooms that we had at the dungeon, and they were so much nicer. (laughs) They were really clean, and everything was white. I, I mean, I think it would be weird, actually, if my doctor had mirrors on the ceiling of of his office,
0: do you? You'd but, think that'd so, be weird.
2: <laughs> I would think that might be a little bit creepy, um, but we did have them there uh, because we specialized in creepy things. Um, and so, what got me there? Um, I mean, I was always bossy. I was—I'm—I'm I'm a big sister. I always wanted to be a teacher. I've always been a writer. I've always been like talked a lot, um, and all of those things definitely served me as a dominatrix um i didn't have any sort of um particular hatred or aggression towards men which is something that people are often surprised by but i think most of the women who ended up working at the dungeon were actually much more typically sort of nurturing type than they were bullying type Mm -hmm. um because you have to be extremely intuitive and really sort of you know you're it's largely an improvised acting job, and so you have to be able to sort of be in touch with what the other person in the room is feeling and what they want and really sort of gauge where they're at so that you can, um, you know, adjust your own performance accordingly. Um, and, you know, I was in college uh, at the time. I, when I first looked for the job, I think I was a junior in college, and um, and I was a really good student, and I was totally employable, um, but I was sick... Of making lattes and of being broke. And I've always had sort of a thing for pushing boundaries and having secrets and playing dress up. And I really sort of played into all of those. Yeah. So I answered an ad in the Village Voice and, and luckily ended up at sort of the nicest place around.
0: So what is you what does an interview look like for a dominatrix?
2: <laughs> I didn't know what to expect. Uh, and so I definitely sort of dressed. I had, like, a little cardigan on, you know, and, um, and I showed up at the dungeon, and I had yet to walk through this whole series of, like, magnetically locking doors, and it's all very, like, a David Lynch movie or something, really dark, and everybody's really good-looking, and um, they basically gave me a tour of the dungeon, um, which was really I mean I'm sure my chin was just dragging on the floor it was like nothing I'd ever seen before it's really beautiful and dreamlike and um, with lots of scary tools that I assumed I wouldn't actually have to use and then of course I did Um, and they basically looked me over and asked if I wanted to start on Monday and I think you know the interview process isn't that important because people are you know, people just BS their way through that whole business, and I think once they throw you into a session, they figure out really quick if you can actually do it or not, and most people just leave after the first shift <laughs> and never come back.
0: So, did um, they, put, they put you through a session to just sort of see how you worked Yeah. It?
2: Well, the way that the training works is that you sit in on the sessions of more experienced doms, and... Um, And you sort of assist them and pick up the tools of the trade. And then when you're comfortable, you start taking your own sessions, which if you're comfortable, you start doing quickly because you don't get paid otherwise. Um, But I think most people have sort of a, you know, like a gentrified idea of what it's going to be like. You know, you're going to go in and you're going to shout some insults and somebody's going to, like, call you mistress, and then you get paid, and maybe you spank them, hmm. um, but it's actually a lot more intimate than that, um, and, it, you know, like I said before, it's very verbal, it's a really intense acting job, and so if you can't become uninhibited and and really become that role and, and just get really close to a total stranger's body, <laughs> um, you know, like golden showers are totally de rigueur for dominatrix sessions there's very few that don't have them Um, and so I think most people and also there's a lot of things we think we're comfortable with in theory and then when we're faced with them um, we're actually not Um,
0: but I found that I was it's funny because I, it's been two years since I've read your book, and I, I obviously flipped through it before our interview today, but cover to cover, I hadn't read it for two years. And mm-hmm. you do have a description in there, and this is totally from memory. I didn't find it on this occasion, but you do have an, a description of the, uh, the step beyond the golden shower and uh, oh. what people wanted and just the, the psychological hurdles that you have to, your body is fighting against doing that and right. Um, right. the psychological hurdles that you have to overcome in order to to engage in it's some of the true. activities you have to engage in.
2: It's true. I mean, there's all kinds of showers. There's golden showers, and there's brown showers, and there's ruby showers, and there's Roman showers, which are vomit showers. There's all kinds of showers. Wow. There are people who come in and want to get farted on and want you to squish bugs on them and rub balloons on them and dress up in animal costumes. Like, it, you know... It, you can think of anything in the world, any bizarre, just any, just name anything, and there's someone out there who has a fetish for it, and there's probably an online community of people who have a fetish for it.
0: And now, um, and now yeah, there's a TLC I mean, show on it.
2: <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of it. I wrote about a lot of it in the book, and I think, you know, if I had walked in there on my first day and they'd said, okay, now you have to go poop on somebody, there's no way I would have been able to do it. You know, if they had said on my very first day you have to pee on somebody, I wouldn't have been able to do it. I would have thought I could, but I wouldn't have been able to do it. And I think what happens is you, you know, in the apprenticeship of the job, and as you, you have to become sort of immersed in the world a little bit, and I think that this is analogous to really all kinds of life, like... As a teacher, as a waitress, as a lover, you know, you, you can't go from zero to 100. You sort of have to acclimate to the environment and to the relationships and to your own identity in that particular context. And for me, I, I, you know, I walked in the door and I had a certain idea of what my limits were. And some of those limits were very, very strict right? Like, I was definitely not going to poop on anybody. I was definitely not going to ever be naked. I was definitely not going to do a submissive session. There were just things that seemed far outside of the realm of what I was comfortable with, and and they were in the beginning. But then, you know, once you pee on somebody every day for three years, suddenly it doesn't seem like that far (laughs) of a leap. And then you see other people do it, and it's part of their normal routine and you know once you become sort of cultured into that world suddenly the, your limits become a little bit murkier and and very slowly I sort of inched into the realm of everything that I had thought I was incapable of when I started
0: right as I as I've yeah. heard it's only kinky the first time right
2: <laughs> yeah yeah and and often it was never kinky for <laughs> not even the first time I mean a lot of it and I, and I think that this takes a really particular personality you know I mean because, you know, your question was, like, did you have to overcome sort of your own instincts or your own limits, you know? And, like, I feel like a, a lot of people would just say no. Like, why would you do that? Why would you make yourself do that? It's, not, it's really not that much money. Um, and I think it, t- it takes a very specific sort of predisposition to wanting to push your own boundaries and wanting to sort of, see what exactly you're capable of, to see how far you can go in any direction. And I'd always sort of been like that with, you know, with like kinky, crazy things, but just in general, like I am a long distance runner and I like to go on juice fast and like I just like to see what I'm capable of, you know? And so it sort of became a kind of challenge, like a personal challenge to to just prove to myself that I could do anything.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, our guest tonight is Melissa Phoebos. Uh, we are talking about uh, her years as a professional dominatrix in New York City, and uh, she did that four years. And um, so there were some statistics that I garnered from the Kinsey Institute. They did some statistics on BDSM. If you, if we didn't define that term, I can't remember if we did or not, but it's bondage, domination, sadomasochism. And um, so they said of the, the, of the sample they did, there's no difference, no significant difference between BDSM 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 practitioners in the general population in terms of psychopathology or depression or anxiety or OCD or psychological sadism and masochism. This is its own thing. It doesn't portend that you are, you know, I don't know, broken in other Mm -hmm. areas, whatever you want to say. Uh, 71% of heterosexual males, but only 11% of heterosexual females. And 12% of homosexual males prefer a dominant role when engaging in sexual bondage. Uh, Mm -hmm. So you find yourself in the minority there, Melissa?
2: I do. I do. Well, you know, if I'm totally honest, I'm not exactly in the minority. And this is sort of an inside secret in the BDSM, at least the commercial BDSM community, is that a lot of the dominatrixes that I know and knew actually were pretty submissive in their personal lives.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Okay,
2: yeah. yeah. Including myself. I mean, I definitely, you know, for me, I think I like to be in control in life. I like to, I like I'm very bossy. I like to freelance. Like, I just like to control my own destiny in as many ways as possible. Um, And I sort of work against that urge. And I think probably because I'm like that in the rest of my life, I actually tend to be pretty submissive in the bedroom. And... um, and I think that, that that was actually true for a lot of my clients. And I think that, you know, I, it's dangerous to generalize, but I think that it's no coincidence that so many of my clients were people who experienced a tremendous amount of responsibility and power in their everyday lives, in their work lives. Most of them were married, father, breadwinner, Wall Street types, very, perf- like, white-collar, white-collar. Um, Yeah, and I think that there are people who, like, some of them definitely were fetishists and into specific things, and some of them were totally just submissive, but a lot of them, I think, just wanted to be bossed around for a while. They just wanted somebody else to be in control because they were tired, Yeah, and I can can relate to that because I felt like that after four years of being the boss.
0: Right. Why don't you just tell me what to do?
2: (laughs) I know. Please. You do the work.
0: Right, right. It's funny because I had an image of, and I guess this is an image that's two years old because that's when I really went through the book, of it actually being a dungeon. But it's like, what floor of this office building were you on?
2: It was on, what floor was it on? I think it might have just been on the second floor.
0: So it wasn't actually a dungeon, though. No,
2: but it looked like a dungeon. Like, the windows were blacked out. There were no windows inside anywhere. The only windows were, like, in the dressing room and in the office. And those were, like... So there was, you know, when you walked around inside, it was like if you woke up in that space, you would have no idea where you were. You would think you were like underground somewhere. And and it was very like, you know, lots of hallways with fancy carpets and all dark walls like black or red or, you know, like dark blue walls and, you know, gilt framed mirrors and dimly burning sconces. And it was very dungeon-esque.
0: It's funny that you said something. You said something that triggered this memory. There's a um, there's a woman in our studio that practices BDSM, and in fact, came on the show and did um, an hour long talk about her role as a sub. And she was talking oh. about this sub space that you get into where time yeah. doesn't mean whatever time means. And uh, mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. so I guess yeah, I think I, yeah, I think that you know people talk about that a lot, and I think. I mean I can't quite speak to that because I don't think I'm a true sub like I'm not I'm not a masochist. I don't think I've ever really gone that far with it, but I've seen it a lot and I think that there's a there's a um there's a similar sort of space that you get into as a dom too because I didn't you know I didn't have sort of an erotic arousal that happened when I was in domination sessions, but it was absolutely a psychological arousal, and there was a place where I totally can identify with that loss of time and everything sort of slowing down, and then there's, you know, when you're in a session with someone who's a really good sub, and I imagine when you're with someone who's a really good dom and you just know what the other person is feeling, and it's just a good rhythm, like it's a good match, um, then it just feels like everything you do is... Perfect. You know, I mean, I've actually experienced similar feelings, like playing sports or running or making love or even writing, mm-hmm. where when you're just sort of in the pocket, you know, and um, and you just have a really good rhythm and you just know that every step is is a solid step,
0: right? You know, right? Th- that state of flow that they talk about, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Melissa, hello.
2: Hello.
1: This is Dana, the co-host.
2: Hi, Dana.
1: I've been quiet. I've been listening to you. And I think from what I gathered, you are an experimental actor who puts on <laughs> improvisational skits for an audience of one.
2: <laughs> yes, that that is a really good description. Although, you know... I don't even know if it, I wouldn't even say it's experimental. I mean, it's improvisational in that sense, but, and, and it's real, so I guess that's pretty experimental. Like, it's real pain that I was inflicting, but, but the scenes are actually pretty cliched. It's not experimental in terms of narrative. <laughs> like, the scenes are all, like, you've been a really bad boy, and you're wearing mommy's panties, and you're going to get it. You know, like, they're all pretty... I mean, you can get into it, but it's not like, you know... It's not like the stories I write as a writer now. Okay, so
1: this is not for intellectual stimulation for them. This is purely sexual for the most part?
2: Pretty much. I would say sexual, psycho-sexual. It's definitely... I I think it's, you know, the psychological component is definitely... I don't think they can get off erotically if it's not sort of triggering that that psychological place. Although I will say that it's definitely... I think it's a good job for a writer. You know, like, I never planned on writing about it when I was doing it, but um, it's great for just, like, verbal wordplay. Like, insulting someone, like, verbal humiliation for, like, 60 minutes is a pretty serious. I thought it would be easy, and it actually is... You really have to think on your toes. You have to get really creative, because there's only so many combinations of words, you know, that we know. You have to come up with new ones.
1: So do you find that you're repeating scenes frequently and just maybe a shade different each time
2: yeah yeah and and you know you uh, by the time i had been doing it for like a year or even less i could have someone come in and i would do a very short consultation with them and i could tell within a few minutes i'd be like okay let's go like tell me if you have a special pair of stockings that that you're into and i can pretty much take it from like i'll give you a safe word and we'll just go because you can just tell from someone's demeanor sort of how how submissive they really are and if they just lead with like i want to do the teacher and really corporal punishment but then with sort of a nurturing ending like i can take it from there i know exactly what they want because it's you get a lot of the same scenes over and over again
1: okay so there are types you'd say
2: For sure. Okay. As always.
1: Now, this kind of brings up an interesting issue that I was hoping you'd have some insight on. Do you think there are a lot of men in the world that want dominant women, but the culture doesn't encourage women to be dominant? And that's why there is this high dollar market. And maybe there's kind of a desire in the population for women to be more assertive.
2: Yeah, I think there is. I mean, I think that, you know, I talked a little bit before about how I think that a personal imbalance of power is part of what ends people up paying to be dominated or to dominate, and I think it it sort of speaks to, you know, a larger context that culturally we have a pretty serious um, imbalance of power between the sexes, and I think that, yeah, I think that men feel sort of oppressed by this cultural definition of masculinity as being in control and not showing emotion and not wanting to be controlled, and, you know, you get made fun of for wanting that. And, and I think for women, we get called bitches if we want to be in control, you know. It's not seen as very attractive, and so I think for both of us, there is something very attractive about it, you know. And I think, you know, if there wasn't sort of a cultural... Um, stigma against it, then no, I don't think people would be paying for it. We would just be um, acting it out in our personal lives if we still needed to act it out, but I think that a lot of my clients were ashamed of that urge, you know, and like Mary said, I don't think that people, like they're sick or they're non-functioning or anything like that, but I think that a lot of times they're embarrassed to share with their partners what their desires are, and so they they end up paying someone who's definitely not going to be shocked by anything they want
0: you know that always brings up the question about whether or not you think that whether or not you dana our listeners you melissa think this is cheating on your spouse and whether or not you would prefer your spouse to have an affair or to be paying for a a dominatrix or to be paying for a prostitute like where on the spectrum are you comfortable or not comfortable having your spouse go for things that you're just not going to provide for them
2: Right. I mean, I have pretty clear feelings about it, never mind the fact that I was in long-term relationships when I was doing this job. I had a total double standard, but I would absolutely not be comfortable with my partner ever doing anything erotic with anybody else that we didn't agree upon beforehand, which would be unlikely. Um, So I totally think that that... And I also can say that when I was in that job, it... I wasn't aware of this at the time, but it became apparent to me over time that, um, that it definitely put sort of a lower ceiling on my intimacy in my own relationships, um, because even if someone's paying for it, even if it, you never see them again, even if you're not turned on when you're doing it, it's still participating in an intimate act with another person, and that affects, I think, your ability to be intimate with other people. At least I can say that it did for me, you know, because I had to sort of, I had to sort of turn off my own emotions to a degree to be able to do the job, and then it wasn't always easy to sort of turn them back on. Um, But that said, I think that for some people, I mean, I honestly, the job taught me so much about just how little I knew and how rarely, how much we should avoid being judgmental about other people, because I definitely had clients who had these really, really deep urges and who, like, at least I think, had happy marriages, and they would just come to me once a month, act out this scene, leave feeling really refreshed, go back to their families, show up for their families. And I think, to them, it functioned the way that, like, therapy or yoga does for me. And I don't know if their partner, like, I definitely am a fan of honesty in relationships, but I'm not going to say that I know what they should be doing or should not be doing, you know? They seemed pretty functional to me.
0: Right. Yeah, I mean, the I. Would, int-
2: kill yeah, my partner, if I found out they were secretly seeing a dominatrix.
0: <laughs> <laughs> did your partners know that you were a dominatrix when you were seeing them?
2: They did. They did know, and I think you know, I, I sort of gave everybody a really tailored version of it when I was doing it. You know, like my family knew, my partners knew, my friends knew, but everybody got sort of the description of it that I thought they could stomach. You know, which often was sort of the funny, shocking version, or, the you know, to my mom, I gave sort of the empowering feminist version, and um, none of them were the whole story, you know, which made it really hard when I wanted to quit because nobody really knew the whole, the whole kit and caboo of what was going on and the parts of it that were actually really hard and, and, um, and uncomfortable for me.
0: Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, the unique thing about this relationship as opposed to others is that it does seem like it it requires a higher degree of trust and even a higher degree of intimacy. I don't know from your part, but certainly from their part, the bonding, Uh I think, would be unique.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, I had had clients who, and I'm sure this, I know that this happens with all sex workers, but I think particularly because I don't know if strippers are acting out like, not necessarily reenacting childhood traumas, you know, and, and that's a lot of what I did. Um, so I think that, you know, my clients were incredibly loyal and and, I mean, they were just really attached to me the same way, you know, that I am to my therapist or to, you know, people... I mean, I just knew them in a way that oftentimes nobody else did at all. And that's really intimate. And that was intimate for me, too. I mean, I think I sort of... The little did at the time because it, it made it easier to avoid sort of the conflicts around that for me, but um, but I also cared very much for, for a lot of my clients, you know, they were, most of them were really good people with some really deep wounds, but they were often extremely intelligent and very deeply feeling, um, and I don't think you can sort of, I don't think you can know someone that intimately and not have a lot of compassion for them.
0: Right. What what was their reaction when you quit?
2: Um. Well, I don't really know because I sort of just quit. And um, although when I really, really when I quit the dungeon, I just quit and I was gone. And then, but I stayed working freelance for a little while and doing private sessions. Like I would rent a private dungeon space and and I just sort of took my regulars with me and saw them privately and charged a lot more money. Um, and it was really hard. It was really hard. They didn't want to let me go. And and I had so many reservations about quitting that it was really sort of a slow secession from the business for me. Like, I hung on to a couple of them for longer than I really wanted to because, I mean, partly because of the money, but also because I just, you know, I had this relationship with them for a lot of years, some of them for four years. Um... And it just, it had become such a part of my identity, too, that they were pretty, I got emails, I, I eventually closed down the email account that I would communicate with them, but I got emails for a, I probably still would be, actually, I'm Facebook friends with some of my old clients, and they still write me letters.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that that speaks to the intensity of the relationship and how comfortable spouses should be sending their their husband or wife off, I guess only yeah. husbands. I don't, I am curious I mean, I do about, think,
2: yeah. you know, if your spouse wants to do some, like, really kinky, nasty shit, like, send them to a dominatrix, <laughs> because they the, the dominatrix isn't going to steal them away from you, you know, like, they don't, they don't want to marry right your husband, um, and if they, and a lot of times they really were able to sort of compartmentalize it and just, like, go once a month. Scratch that itch, and that was it. It wasn't like they were they weren't running away together
0: or anything, right? Right. Yeah, we had um, we did a segment on Dan Savage's opinion about um, adultery and infidelity, and when a partner just refuses to do a certain subset of whatever in the bedroom, you know, is it is it a bad thing that there? Do you just stay and be miserable for twenty five years, or do you let the person go just to scratch that particular discreet itch that you? have yeah. now refused to satisfy.
2: What was the consensus on that when you guys talked about it?
0: Well, I, I read it from the New York Times article and uh, as you might imagine, there was a lot of opinion about it, but I guess <laughs> readers of Savage Love, you know, in general, are are big proponents of Dan Savage, so a lot of people yeah. were on board for it. You know, I mean, it, it divided down yeah. the line of somebody who's unhappy in the bedroom and somebody who doesn't want their spouse to cheat on it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I,
2: I mean, I get that. I totally believe in, like, you know, liberation of all people in their own relationships, but I don't think that would, at least at this point in my life, that would never work for me. Like, I can't, I mean, for me, and this might sound ironic coming from someone who is a professional sex worker, but but for me, sex and and love are so fused for me that, like, it's, I don't really want to have sex with people that I couldn't fall in love with, you know? And so, if I wanted to go off and do a sexual thing with somebody who is not my partner, the odds are, like, I'm looking to fall in love with somebody else you know or or that that would be a serious possibility you know because i don't i can't at this point really isolate my sort of sexual urges from my emotional urges
0: well i think you're in the perfect position to answer that question having been <laughs> on this side of a uniquely pers- perfect position it's to answer true that.
2: it's true i mean and that's definitely true for me but i also know that it is completely possible for other people i totally know people who can do that and i think that and this is might sound awful but it's true that I think it's often easier for men Mm -hmm. it's easier for men like I know lots of I have lots of like gay male friends who can do that and totally have a happy comfortable relationship like it's fine because they know you really have to both partners I think have to be able to uh, compartmentalize or separate the sex from the love in that way because then you can trust that someone else can do it. But because I can't do it, I wouldn't trust someone else to be able to do it, <laughs> you know? Right. I would be obsessed right, with them falling in love with whoever it was that was, like, you know, squishing them in a pile of teddy bears or whatever their thing
0: was. Because you know how intimate the act and how much these people were bonded to you. I mean, if the people yeah. are emailing you years after your relationship has ended and it yeah. was a professional relationship, that's an indicator of how intimately bonded they were to you.
2: Yeah, I don't know, and it's 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 also hard for me to imagine, like, for me, sex is really, it's just part of falling in love, it's also falling in love with making love with your partner, and if you have, like, a really, if you diverge that dramatically, like, I just don't know how it could get that, it wouldn't get that far for me, like, I don't think it would really work. Right. I don't know. Right. But I don't have any particularly crazy kinks, so...
0: I was going to ask if in the aftermath of this, if you could be with just a plain vanilla guy who wants just, you know, yeah, boring that's, sex.
2: Yeah, that is actually, especially right when I quit, I, I just could never, I mean, you know, it, I'll use an analogy. When I was in my late teens and early 20s, I worked at an ice cream shop, right? And I love ice cream like most people And after working at the ice cream shop for two years, I was not interested in ice cream for a long time. (laughs) And after throwing dildos around and calling people nasty names and spanking and spitting on people for four years, when I stopped doing that, it was was totally unsexy to me. Like, there was nothing that I did at work that I wanted to be asked to do outside of work because it would... It just felt like work. It just felt like work, and I had spent so long sort of detaching myself from those acts. Like, they just had no novelty left to them at all. And so it was actually kind of interesting, because I just couldn't do any of it for a while. Um, And now I feel, you know, I'm open to anything, um, but I don't... I'm actually a little bit vanilla myself. Like, I like sort of the power stuff, but there aren't any particular... Places where my sort of perversity focuses in on, like you know, balloons or bugs or like saran wrap. (laughs) I'm not not into any of that stuff. So, so vanilla works okay for me.
0: Yeah, I was wondering if you know some of the um, some of the novelty is experiencing things together with a new partner, right? So when he comes to you and says, "Let's do something new," and there's nothing they can tell you that's new.
2: I know. Too bad. I I mean, I think that, yeah, that was a huge, you know, and I tried, I mean, I think I wrote about it a little bit in the end of the book, but I could totally write another book about this, because for me, the uncharted territory in terms of sex was not about typical kinky things. It wasn't about, like, the props, you know what I mean? For me, what was sort of uncharted territory was, like, really being present and awake for having sex and not going into some role or not acting at all and really just, like, getting into that place where, you know, like subspace, where it really slows down and you're just in what you're doing and you're not thinking about what the other person wants you to be saying or if you your body looks good or so. For me, I feel like that's what became really exciting and new for me when I quit working in the job was that I was able to really, like, let go into sort of real intimacy instead of, like, adventurous acts, because none of it was really adventurous anymore.
0: Right. You are tuned into the chat room on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We are with Melissa Phoebos talking about her years as a professional dominatrix in New York City. And, um, oh, God, there's so, many, there's so many places I want to go with this. <laughs> <It's hard. laughs>
1: I, have, I wonder if you have any experience with couples who are of a different demographic than your customers but are seeking this in their actual intimate relationships.
2: Yeah, I actually, you know, people ask me all the time if I ever saw women. And I didn't ever see lone women, but I actually saw a lot of couples when I was working. And they would totally come in and say, we want to play around with this, one of us. You know, one of them would be particularly curious about it, but not really know what to do, or one person would know what to do, and the other person would be nervous about what they were supposed to do, and I would sort of, um, you know, give a demonstration and sort of coach them along, and I loved seeing couples. They were so fun. I mean, I think partly because, you know, I didn't, it didn't really bother me that my clients were married, or I didn't really know about their personal lives, and I didn't really care. Um but there was some part of me that it just seemed essentially kind of lonely to be paying someone to fulfill your desires, because I didn't love them, you know. And, and when you're working with couples, you're really sort of, it felt like it was being more of service in certain ways. And they would be so happy afterwards, like they would be so excited to go home and try it, you know.
0: <laughs> or Are there any men who, um, women who can go see men in the dungeon, or is it all women?
2: It was all women, and I know that there are men who work masters. Um, but honestly, I think that most of them cater to gay men. Okay. Um, maybe sometimes I know that you know there was one particular guy I knew in particular, and and I and he, I would say that he saw ninety percent men, um, and maybe women a little bit. Um, but, you know, my line on that is always that I don't think women usually have to pay to be dominated. Um, <laughs> we can usually find that just on the street or in a bar, you know. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, like you said, the Kinsey Kinsey people have already told us that, um, I mean, mostly I think it's, it's men do get off on being dominated more so than they do on being submissive. Um, and I think that, you know... Obviously, from experience, I know that a lot of women have submissive fantasies, and so I think that probably uh, probably a majority of heterosexual relationships probably fall into those roles in bed. I think that men tend to be more dominant. Right. Um, but I don't know. I mean, right? That's just the people I know and right. my own experience.
0: They always have those cartoons about women being... Um Domin or whatever they're, you know, they're just making their husbands do the dishes or something or yeah. mow the lawn or something, <laughs> <I
2: know>. right? <laughs> That's, although I have to say, it's true. I tend to be pretty bossy everywhere else, but instead. <laughs> right, I'm definitely like, you know, what are you doing? Are you doing it that way? Let me show you.
0: <laughs> right. You're doing it wrong. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Do you have yeah. uh, do you have any regrets about any of it was or are there parts of it that you look back on not not even the whole experience itself but just discrete parts of it that if you could redo it you would do it a different way
2: Oh god it's hard you know I mean I think I I have very few regrets I mean and there are things that I think I screwed up like I didn't do everything right but I but it's also hard like once you start fucking with stuff, like, like if I undid something, I, some mistake I made, like, I might have not been able to write a decent book about it. Or I might be a dumber person now. Like, I might have that mistake ahead of me, probably, since I tend to learn things the hard way. Um, but I can say that there were, there's a lot that I did then that I wouldn't do now. You know, like, I, I did a lot of drugs during that time, which was really dangerous for me and scary for the people around me and probably not safe for a lot of my clients and nothing happened but um but it was pretty stupid and and I also just you know I wish I wish sometimes that I could have been more honest you know like I think that time for me is definitely characterized by a lot of memories but it was a pretty lonely time for me in a lot of ways because I didn't It was just too hard for me to tell anybody what was really fully going on. Like, that's the dark side to having a secret life is that you're alone in it, you know? It's a secret. Right. (laughs) It's sort of a world of one because nobody knows. Like, I had people who knew me as Justine in the dungeon, and then I had people who knew me as Melissa, like, everywhere else, and there were very few people who knew both parts of me. And, And there was also... I had one client who became a really a friend, um, and I ended up falling in love with his best friend in a way that I think was really painful and insensitive. (laughs) And that's the kind of thing where I don't know if I could have changed it, you know, but I would be more, I I just am more careful with people now, you know. I just sort of did whatever I felt like doing then.
0: Yeah. It it sounds hard to get through this experience without some sort of drug use, you know, that you have to talk yourself over hurdles that that would make it easier.
2: (laughs) It's true. And I mean, I don't, I don't know if it facilitated it necessarily. I mean, I don't know if I would have started it, but I was already doing drugs before I started doing it. And that definitely made it easier. Like, since I, you know, I got sober a few years into the job and that definitely contributed to my I couldn't have stayed in it sober, you know. Like, for a while I did, and it actually got more intense in certain ways, but but it was really sort of just being awake all of the time. It became a really hard job to do when you're just totally sober all the time. It's, a, it's pretty intense. So it, it helped to be sort of checked out and relaxed and not really caring about anything. That that definitely made it easier in the beginning. Yeah. Um, but I, But I do think, you know, and I think there are places where... There are dungeons where people where drugs are pretty common, but the place where I worked actually wasn't they were they ran a pretty tight ship there weren't a lot like clients would come in and bring their cocaine more often than the dominatrixes would
0: interestingly, you know through these studies that I was reading about in statistics and the the interview that we did with the um the woman here at the station who's into this realm, drugs are really kind of off the table because people mm-hmm. think and I think men and mostly amongst amateurs, because somebody can really get hurt, you know, so.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's true. And I and I think that it also sort of, I mean, for people who are really, truly into it, it kind of undermines the experience, because I think um, they want to be awake for it. Like, that's intimacy, like, that's their, you know, like, I don't want to be drunk or high when I'm having... With the person I love, like that would undermine it for me. I want to be able to remember it. I want to be awake for it, you know. And I think that if that's your most intimate experience, you really want to experience it. Never mind, yeah. That you can really hurt someone. You don't want to like pass out while you're, you know, asphyxiating someone or tying them up, or you have to be
0: right, careful. right. Yeah, you're right. And yeah, and if you're paying five hundred dollars an hour or something to yeah. somebody, you don't want to. You don't want to sleep through it. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. Did
0: you
1: get the impression that any of these people wanted to, they kind of saw their fetish or their situation as something negative, and they wanted to get past it, or they were ambivalent about indulging in it sometimes?
2: Both. I definitely saw both. And then, I mean, there was was definitely, and you know, I want to clarify this by saying, that you know, I worked in a commercial dungeon where people were paying for it. This was a, a, a different population than people who, who probably like your coworker, do it in their personal lives. It's just like their intimate relationships. That's a part of it. Um, I think that those people are probably more. There's a lot less shame. If no, I mean, often no shame at all, um, any more than the rest of us have. But um, but the people who came to see me were paying for it which usually meant that they weren't doing it in their personal lives, which was often a result of feeling ashamed of it. You know, like they didn't want to talk about it. They didn't they didn't feel safe talking about it. They had been shamed about it. I don't know. So, so there was a lot of shame in the people who came to see me, and they, I guess, yeah, some of them wanted to get it out of their system or they thought that they would, like, if they just did it enough times, they would scratch that itch permanently. But, you know, it just don't usually work that way. Um, but there were also people who felt like it was their exciting secret and their true self and wasn't it great that we understood each other because we had this, you know, this, this knowledge about what was real and who we really were and, and they sort of had a, had a kind of pride and preciousness about it, you know. There, I mean, people had all sorts of perspectives on their own sexuality, as I think we do, you know, outside of the dungeon too.
0: What was your uh, scariest experience?
2: Oh, Lord. What was my scariest experience? I mean, it depends how you define scary. I mean, once, um, can I be totally graphic?
0: No. <laughs> you Not can talk totally in euphemism. Okay.
2: <laughs> well, well, I was once doing this procedure on someone, which is similar to a catheterization, if you know what that is. Yeah. Um, and it got bloody. It got a little bloody, and that was pretty scary. Although then my client just pulled his blindfold off and said, "Oh, don't worry about it. That happens happened." <laughs> oh, I was like, oh, "I wish you hadn't told me." <laughs> or you should have
0: told uh, me that before. That,
2: yeah, there were a couple moments like that. Nothing that I, like nothing where anyone was actually hurt. But there was a another person who had a session at the dungeon, and their client had a seizure, and, and the ambulance came. That was pretty scary. Mm. Um, but. I think the real, like, what was really most scary for me was, um, you know, I had some moments of really feeling like I was losing myself, you know? I mean, I had, towards the end, I had a client who was into public humiliation, and so he would want to sort of do a session in a hotel room and then sort of take it outside in a, like, half-covered-up way. Like, he was sort of into the idea of maybe being spotted by total... Unassuming strangers in the street, you know. Right. right. <laughs> and so we would sort of like go walk around Manhattan and not very populated areas, and I would take him to an ATM and make him take money out for me, which might sound really fun, um, but it was actually really nerve wracking because I just felt I just felt really humiliated because I did not want strangers to see that I was doing this weird sexual thing in public with this strange much older man right. in a trench coat like
0: <laughs> that yeah because awful. now it's humiliating I was, like, you right?
2: terrified yeah that I was gonna see someone I knew or just and it just felt like horrible sort of violation of strangers too like who wants I just didn't want any part of it but I didn't feel comfortable I didn't say no you know I still did it for a while which was pretty uncomfortable
0: for me yeah yeah I can yeah I can I can see that <laughs> <laughs> Sadly we're drawing down on our time. Were there um are there big chunks of things that we missed that we didn't talk about that we should have? I
2: don't, so. I don't know. Is there anything that that you guys are curious about or that you think your listeners would be curious about that we haven't touched
0: on? There must be. There's hours of things I'm curious about, but I still have to stay within the FCC guidelines. So <laughs> It's true. We did all we could. We did all we could for this station. <laughs>
2: yeah, well, there's still, there's lots of gory details in the book. There,
0: there are. are yeah, details. no, the The book is a fascinating read. Yeah, what is the book called? The book is Whip Smart, and uh, it's her memoir that came out two years ago. Did it come out in paperback as well?
2: It did. It came out in paperback last July. Great. So it's available all over the place. You can get it on Amazon or at Barnes and & Noble and you can get it for your Kindle and yeah, I really was, I made a decision to be pretty unsparing in my details there. So, it's, um, yeah, more than you, re- Probably
0: want to (laughs) know. Yeah, no, it's it's an it's an amazing read, and I, you know, I think the thing that I so appreciated about the book is I don't know how many people can be articulate and insightful and sort of wise and reflective about their experience in this, and you know, I, I don't know how many sex industry workers there are that are. Incredibly articulate and you know oh, and self-reflective. Thank you. Thank so you.
2: that's really nice.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's an amazing public service I think that you did here for all of us because I, I do think that there's a veil of shame that you've touched on yeah. over and over through this interview that the interview the um, internet has taken away a little bit of and some of these yeah. these uh, TV shows on TLC with all of the sexual mm-hmm. fetishes have <laughs> taken away some, mm-hmm. uh, but I do yeah. think that people are ashamed of of you know, fairly common desires. It's true. It's true. And I
2: think, you know, a huge part of that, you know, is is the secrecy element of it. And I just think that telling your story and telling the truth, especially about the things that you're insecure or afraid or ashamed of, it's the most empowering and helpful thing that you can do. It has absolutely, like, I don't, that is one thing I have absolutely no regrets about. Like, I have heard back from so many people who send me emails and say I thought I was the only person who felt this thing Mm. you know and not sex workers but just people who have felt ambiguous about their desires or their identity or you know anything like that and I think that just just talking about it. I really hope that we keep moving in that direction because it can only do good for people.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Melissa Phoebos, this was a huge pleasure. Thanks so much for taking the time tonight. Thank you so much, Mary and Dana. It was so fun. Yes, thank you. That was Melissa Phoebos. The book, again, is Whip Smart. It chronicles her four years as a professional dominatrix in New York City. We are, uh, we're still in fun drive mode. That's true. You can, uh, you can call us. Uh, we, uh, Dana and I won't be here in the next hour, but you can call us whenever
1: you want really yes 9498245824 we would appreciate your support to keep the station running we get a little bit of money from the university they help us out a little bit but it doesn't cover everything and if you appreciate the volu- the all volunteer nonprofit kind of thing we're doing here you know we do still do even with the internet and the proliferation of online radio we still do something that's very unique here that isn't even done Online anywhere, we just proved that. That's true. I
0: feel like we just proved that. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. You can't get any sh- You can't get a show like this on mm. any other station, web or terrestrial.
0: I know. So I was hoping we're going to bring on this awesome guest next week, but I guess we're being preempted with basketball. But it. Stay tuned. In the coming weeks, uh, we are bringing on a plastic surgeon from Newport Beach. You cannot believe what the latest plastic surgery trend is in Newport Beach. What women have. Decided to do now. This this procedure is uh, is on the rise. I don't know if it's on the rise all around the country or if it's just on the rise here in Orange County. But tune in. Uh, we will advertise it on Facebook. It'll be coming up in the next couple of weeks and hear what this crazy these crazy women are doing now to make themselves attractive to men. You have been tuned into the chat room, 88.9 FM in Irvine, KUCI. Give us a call if uh, you are so inclined to help keep us on the air. We are here all week through Monday taking your, uh, taking your funds. So uh, thanks so much for tuning in. Have a great weekend.
1: I get out, while well, I'm the master of balance With multiple talents I provide the landscape, baby You provide the challenge I've been broken down and out And look at the sound that I'm drowning out. I'm around the town and I'm round about and it's better than a kick in your freaking mouth if these words might scare
2: you, I'm make you Make you tremble and double dare you but Now we're always learning